welcome to Neuro Podcasters, a neurology podcast created for medical students. To get the most out of this episode, you can download the supplementary case notes which are available on Vital. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the NeuroPod podcast. Um, we are very lucky to have with us today Dr. Ben Michael. Uh, so Ben uh, is a consultant here at the Walton Centre and also a clinician scientist with the um, University of Liverpool and has a particularly special interest in all things neuroinfection. Okay, so to, um, to start with the case. Ben, we have a 40-year-old right-handed gentleman who presents with essentially headache and confusion. He presents with a two-day history of increasing headache that he describes as being frontal in its distribution and is associated with nausea and occasional vomiting. It was so bad he had to take yesterday off work and uh, when his wife came home she noted that he was acting strangely, that he seemed confused, that he told her that he had been at work and later in the evening kept asking her the same questions and was repetitive. He went to bed early as he was feeling a bit feverish and on waking the following morning he appeared less responsive, less interactive and eventually his wife found it very difficult to, to even wake him up and found that he was glazed over and quite out of it. His past medical history includes hypertension and migraines. Uh, for that he takes Ramapril, 5 milligrams once a day. He has no past surgical history and his social history he works as a mechanic. He's a non-smoker, occasionally drinks alcohol and there's been no recent history of foreign travel. Ben, how do you approach a, uh, a patient like this as a, as a neurologist? Yeah, this is a really important case. Um, I think the first thing we need to deal with is delirium. Now, as a junior doctor, that's the vast majority of cases of, of acute confusion that people will see. But delirium, or an acute confusional state, really occurs in a very specific context, i.e. someone who already has impaired cognitive reserve. So if you have a an elderly patient with mild cognitive impairment who then goes on to develop uh, acute confusion, it's usually in the context of some precipitating factor on that background. And precipitating factors could include infections such as pneumonia, metabolic disturbances such as uh, hyponatremia, endocrine disturbances such as thyroid dysfunction, or severe pain like a fractured neck of femur. That's quite distinct from the case that we're discussing here. We have a 40-year-old gentleman who is fit and well and functioning as uh, a mechanic with no history of cognitive impairment who presents now with a relatively short history of confusion. So the next point uh, that we need to think about Viraj is distinguishing the different sorts of things that can cause acute confusion. Now encephalopathy, which is uh, the medical term for confusion, really has a very broad range of differential diagnoses but we need to think here about the things which require urgent investigation and treatment. And within the encephalopathies, the thing we're particularly concerned about here is encephalitis. Encephalitis is inflammation of the brain. Uh, we've got some markers here that he may have inflammation of the brain. He's not just confused, he's also got a headache and he's also got a fever. And what they used to teach in medical school, and I think you'll still find in many of the medical textbooks when it comes to encephalitis and meningitis, is the triad of, of meningitis. And we've learnt over these last couple of decades through research that 
I've led and, and confirmed by many others that this triad of meningitis really isn't very useful in a developed world setting. Now, what is useful is instead to think about a question quadrad. So if you take the four items of fever, headache, meningism, by which I mean neck stiffness and sensitivity to light and vomiting, along with confusion, if a patient has at least two of those features, meningitis or encephalitis needs to be high up on the differential diagnosis. And the last thing I'll say on that is that the confusion is really not a change in the Glasgow Coma Score or the mini mental state, for example. It's actually more, often more subtle than that, particularly early on. And in our ABN, uh, BIA National Guidelines, we refer to changes in behaviour, personality, cognition or consciousness. And it's really any one of those that raises suspicion. Uh, and here we have headache fever and a collateral history from his wife that he is not who he would normally be, which is much, much more sensitive than asking someone a 10-point mental test or assessing that their GCS is 15. Indeed. Okay, super. And obviously encephalopathy, the big umbrella term, has many systemic causes, like you said, so um, any systemic sort of sepsis or liver dysfunction, or renal dysfunctions, all of those are encephalopathies caused by systemic causes, but we have specific brain causes of importance to this case is encephalitis. And obviously the really important point to the fact that confusion is can be much more subtle than than something as crude as a, a drop in Glasgow Coma Scale or, or an AMTS, that actually behaviour and personality and what the collateral history tells us is, is incre incredibly important. Super. Um, so I think the, the other thing I wanted to ask before we move on to the examination, Ben, was what does the what does the tempo about what's happened to this gentleman tell us here? So we've got a two-day history, which is pretty acute. Now, if alternatively you were saying actually this was a six-month history or a 12-month history of progressive cognitive impairment, you might be thinking about a degenerative pathology, like a young, young onset Alzheimer's disease, which can be familial and has a genetic preponderance. Or if you were saying actually this was a three-month history, uh, you might be thinking about some of the more slowly uh, progressive but yet inflammatory encephalitides, and that would include things like prion disease or paraneoplastic phenomena. But this quite short history really does tell us that whatever this process is, it is acute, and those processes tend to be inflammatory in origin. And the encephalitides really break down into one of three groups, which are roughly equally distributed. Uh, around about a third are infectious, often viral pathogens. Around about a third are autoimmune, so the body's own immune system producing antibodies we can detect in the cerebrospinal fluid or blood. And about a third, we never find the exact etiology, but we do find proxy markers of inflammation. And we can come on to talk about that. So um, at this point, I think I'll move on to the examination and um, talk through that and see if that changes our thoughts on anything. So uh, on examination, he appears unwell. Uh, he's disorientated to time and place and has a reduced level of alertness. Um, his blood pressure is mildly raised, 150 over 88. His heart rate is 90, but um, has no added sounds. His lung fields are entirely clear. His SATs are quite normal at 98%. And his respiratory rate is also normal at 16. His abdomen is soft and non-tender. And 
On neurological examination, really, there's nothing to find on the cranial nerves. He has no cerebellar signs. And there's nothing to find on peripheral examination of the upper limbs or lower limbs. And his reflexes are quite normal with downgoing plantars bilaterally. So, really, no focal neurologies find on the bulk of the, of the examination. But clearly, we can corroborate that he is disorientated to time and place uh, and has a reduced level of alertness. So Ben, that kind of examination, does it back up your original thoughts that this might be ineffective or, or not really change things? So this is a good example of a case where they have broadly normal neurological function in terms of their tone, power, reflexes and sensation. And actually that is pretty common for encephalitis and makes up the vast majority of patients. Now when the examination can be helpful, there are a few uh, specific situations. There are some particular pathogens which have a predilection for the brain stem, and they can often cause cranial nerve palsies. There are other pathogens and inflammatory processes that can affect uh, basal ganglia and cause movement disorders. Um, there are others where you get an inflammatory process involving the brain and the spinal cord. There you may have changes in tone and reflexes and power. And then there are some that have a predilection for areas of the brain where we often see seizures, and that is particularly the, the mesial temporal lobe. And I'd like to highlight that these seizures can be quite subtle. So they may be brief periods of deja vu, they may be brief stereotyped attacks of unusual rising sensations coming up from the abdomen, and they can also represent something called subtle motor or non-convulsive status, epilepticus. Now, status epilepticus is a recurrence of seizures which go on for uh, more than 30 minutes, either as one seizure or multiple seizures between which the patient doesn't recover. And often people think of convulsive seizures, where the, the whole body is shaking in a tonic-clonic rhythmic pattern. But subtle motor status is where there is a much more subtle movement disorder, so it may just be uh, twitching of a hand or twitching of a leg but in a repetitive, stereotyped and rhythmic pattern. And then non-convulsive status is where the patient just appears confused or drowsy, but actually is dipping in and out of uh, subtle seizures in which there is no motor component. So the key things to think about are, are there fluctuations in respiratory pattern, in motor posturing of the arms or legs, or deviation of the eyes and head that go hand in hand with this altered consciousness that would make one think about uh, subtle motor or non-convulsive status. Uh, I'd highlight just that an example of a brainstem pathogen would be listeria or enterovirus. Uh, an example of a movement disorder predominant encephalitis would include the antibody-mediated encephalitis where the antibodies are directed towards the NMDA receptor. An example where you get encephalitis and a myelitis or inflammation of the spinal cord includes acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, which is a post- or para-infectious inflammatory response within the brain and spinal cord. And then subtle motor and non-convulsive status are particularly common in HSV encephalitis, or the herpes simplex virus type 1. I think we're at the point where we've, we've got about as much information as we can from the history and the examination. We've talked through what kinds of things we're worried about, um, and clearly many of them are urgent if not emergent situations so I guess the, the, the right thing to talk about next would be where we go on and how we manage this patient next 
Ben, what are the urgent considerations here and how do we proceed with this case? So the first and most important investigation is actually a collateral history. Now we're fortunate in this case that Verge has described that his wife is present and is able to give that collateral history. Not uncommonly a confused patient may well be encountered on their own and actually obtaining their consent to use their mobile phone and contact next of kin and other contacts actually is the single most important acute investigation because that is going to get us the answer to that critical question that Virage posed, which was, what is the chronicity of this problem? If this is a 12-month history, it's very different from this being a three-month history, which is very different from this being a two-day history. So that collateral is absolutely pivotal. The next thing, I think it's very reasonable to take some blood tests. I think most patients in this circumstance will have things like a full blood count, um, renal and liver function, maybe toxicology. They're all very appropriate. Um, However, given the case we're discussing, it is vastly more likely that the critical information that we need is going to be obtained by analysis of cerebrospinal fluid obtained from a lumbar puncture. This will allow us to either confirm our suspicion of encephalitis or decrease the likelihood of it by looking at simple parameters which will be available within 30 minutes to an hour or so of the lumbar puncture being performed and also will direct our treatment towards specific etiologies. Now, um, so, so I think this is a good time to perhaps talk through what the results show and then we can talk through the, the, the relevance and salience of those two. So um, I think to some extent, as expected, the bloods aren't that remarkable. The haemoglobin 130, platelets of about 300, white cell count quite normal. Um, renal function demonstrates normal sodium and potassium uh, with a, a low urea, if anything, but a creatinine of about 100. Um, and a CRP of 10, so, so that, that, I guess we can talk about that in a moment. But um, liver function entirely normal and, and with a normal clotting as well, so normal synthetic function of the liver. So to move on to, to, to where the money is, so CSF. Um, the first results you'll probably get back will be the cell counts. And in this situation, we have um, a white cell count of 50 that are 100% lymphocytes, we have protein of 0.9, we have a CSF glucose of 4.4 with a serum glucose of 6.2, so that's a ratio of more than 50%, and um, oligoclonal bands as being positive, we're not sure whether they're matched or unmatched, and then the later uh, results you'll get back will be the sort of microscopy culture and sensitivity, they may take a couple of days to come back, uh, but they show no growth at all. So, Ben, I think, yeah, I think the bloods uh, successfully confirm that there's no systemic cause to this person's encephalopathy, but the CSF is certainly abnormal. Um, would you like to talk us through that? Yeah, so the first thing I should say is that around lumbar punctures, there is, um, I think it's fair to say, some degree of anxiety amongst most junior doctors and, and, uh, and the public. Um, Now, the anxiety arises from this concept of coning. Uh, By coning, what I mean is a shift of the brain uh, in a downward displacement through the foramen magnum, which causes compression of vital structures of the brainstem and can be fatal. Now, coning can occur when you don't perform a lumbar puncture, just as part of the natural inflammation of the brain. But there is potentially a risk that performing a lumbar puncture would increase those chances. Mm. 
Now, we've good evidence from, from multiple studies and is now effectively ratified in guidelines from the ABN, BIA, at NICE and the Meningitis Research Foundation that imaging, which we will come on to, is actually not a good predictor of whether or not someone will develop this coning problem. Mm. Now, coning happens not because there is raised intracranial pressure, but rather because there is obstructive raised intracranial pressure. And at that point, by performing a lumbar puncture, one lowers the pressure at the point the needle is inserted in the lumbar spine, but there is an obstruction which doesn't allow that fluid to equilibrate, and the raised pressure above the level of the obstruction causes brain shift. Now, if imaging is not going to help us, what is? Now, we actually have pretty good evidence that if someone has obstruction to the point of getting obstructive raised intracranial pressure, they will have some clinical signs. So those clinical signs are typically seizures, a very low level of consciousness, i.e. below a GCS of 12 or 13, or a focal neurological sign, which could be weakness down one side of the body, or a cranial nerve palsy, or papilledema, which is a swelling of the optic discs. Now, if those clinical features are not present, then one should proceed with a lumbar puncture with very little delay. If those features are present, then one would obtain imaging, discuss with a senior, and work out the risk-benefit of performing a lumbar puncture at that stage. If it is felt that a lumbar puncture is still contraindicated, then that decision should be reviewed every 12 to 24 hours and lumbar puncture performed when possible. Because for us to establish a diagnosis of encephalitis, we need to obtain cerebrospinal fluid, ideally, because encephalitis, being inflammation of the brain, is a diagnosis that really, with 100% certainty, is made histopathologically, i.e. at the point of a brain biopsy, and for obvious logistical and safety reasons, that's not routinely performed, so one has to rely on proxy markers of brain inflammation to establish the diagnosis. Now, what one might find at the time of performing the lumbar puncture is that the, the pressure is raised uh, on the manometer at the time of performing the lumbar puncture, and then these very early results we get back here, we have a white cell count of 50, uh, slightly raised protein of 0.9, and a normal glucose ratio. Now, in most cases of encephalitis, the white cell count is raised if it is infectious. So around about 90% of patients will have a degree of a CSF pleocytosis. Now, that still means that one in 10 patients where you suspect they might have encephalitis will have an initially normal lumbar puncture. That doesn't completely exclude the diagnosis, and if encephalitis remains on the differential, then these patients should continue to be treated as if they have encephalitis, whilst that lumbar puncture is repeated a further 24 to 48 hours later, and more advanced neuroimaging is obtained. In the autoimmune encephalitides, the cerebrospinal fluid is often pretty bland. Now, in the infectious causes, which is what it looks like we're dealing with here, we are interested in whether there is a lymphocyte predominance or a neutrophil predominance. Lymphocytes tend to predominate in viral or autoimmune conditions, and neutrophils tend to predominate in bacterial causes. The caveat to that broad rule of thumb is that often in viral infection, neutrophils predominate when the lumbar puncture is performed very early on as they predominate within the blood and they are early responders to, to any inflammatory process. 
But over the course of uh, days, the neutrophils decrease in the CSF and the lymphocytes increase. The protein is generally rele uh, elevated. It's often more sensitive. And sometimes in autoimmune encephalitis, it's actually the only CSF marker which is abnormal. It tends to be very raised in bacterial or mycobacterial infection, more mildly raised in viral infection, and more mildly raised still in autoimmune conditions. The CSF glucose is very helpful, but it needs to be compared with the plasma glucose. And as Viraj has pointed out, it's the ratio that we're interested in. So a low ratio, i.e. below 50%, is what one typically sees in bacterial infection because the bacteria are consuming the glucose within the CSF. A very low CSF to plasma glucose ratio is typically seen in mycobacterial infection, thinking of TB, as TB consumes lots of sugar. And a normal glucose ratio, as we have here, is what one would expect in a viral or autoimmune problem. The oligoclonal bands are not particularly helpful. These are uh, effectively a signature of antibody production within the CSF. What we need to do is, just like with the glucose, compare the CSF to serum pattern. And if one identifies oligoclonal bands which are present in the CSF but not present in the serum, that suggests there is some intrathecal, i.e. within the central nervous system, B-cell antibody production. Where antibodies are useful is when testing for viruses has been negative because there has been a delay in performing the lumbar puncture, particularly if the patient's been treated with an antiviral medication before the lumbar puncture is performed, one may not find the DNA of the virus, but while, well, could quite possibly find that the antibodies are present, and uh, that is very useful for the viral conditions, particularly HSV and VZV. And then antibodies, of course, are useful when one's trying to assess if this is an autoimmune process. Often the antibodies are present in serum and they may also be present in CSF. And the veracity of the finding is uh, increased in terms of the sensitivity of this being autoimmune encephalitis if those antibodies are also present in the CSF and not just the serum. Excellent. So I think lots of really important key points to take away there. I think, being, and the overall one being, if you are worried about encephalitis or any sort of CNS infection in your patient, you cannot do an LP early enough. Um, the only things that should hold you up is, is this sort of theoretical risk of coning, but I think we've had a very good um, detailed outline of, of, of what sort of things you should be worried about when it comes to coning, which is that imaging actually isn't very helpful, but the clinical um, presentation of the patient will tell you whether you should be worried about coding in this patient. And things like a very low GCS or seizures are the things to, to, to bear in mind if you're going to be delaying NLP. Um, okay, so to, to move on with the case a little more, I think really we have, the, we have the confirmatory test here with this patient, which is, and say that, you know, the, the, the viral PCR is HSV1 positive, and the MRI imaging, which you all have uh, on your sheets as well, um, demonstrates this enhancement in the right temporal pole, um, predominantly of the white matter, but certainly encroaching into the grey matter as well. Um, ben, is this to be expected? Yeah, so HSV type 1 is um, transmitted by droplet spread, 
by the time you're 21, 90% of people are infected with HSV type 1. It lies in latency, or a sort of sleeping phase, in the trigeminal ganglia, and reactivates periodically when you feel a bit run down. And for some people, and we don't quite know why, the virus actually reactivates and travels up into the brain. It is in doing so, through trigeminal and olfactory connections, that HSV predominates in the temporal lobe, particularly the mesial temporal lobe, around the hippocampus and amygdala. And it is usually a bilateral but asymmetrical change. As Viraj just pointed out, it's both cortical and subcortical edema. There is also midline shift on this scan, caused as a consequence of the swelling. And this is very, very typical for HSV type 1 encephalitis. Were this autoimmune encephalitis, the imaging features are often a lot more subtle and often a lot more symmetrical. So Ben, we have, we have very abnormal CSF, we have very abnormal imaging. This is a young man and he's very unwell. How do we go about treating this uh, and when should we be treating this and with what? Yeah, so there, there were landmark studies in the 1980s which confirmed that acyclovir which is a nucleoside analogue and effectively competes for viral replication, is a very effective drug in HSV encephalitis. Now, mortality, untreated, is 70 to 80% in this condition. But treated with acyclovir, that mortality rate drops down dramatically to more in the region of 10 to 20%. That being said, many of the survivors, and at least two-thirds, are left with some degree of neurological sequelae, but nevertheless, this is a critical drug to start early. Current British guidelines suggest that treatment should be started within the first six hours of admission to hospital and with intravenous acyclovir. The acyclovir, therefore, is typically given at the point of clinical suspicion of encephalitis before the results of the CSF are back and before advanced neuroimaging has been performed. And that is absolutely right. Uh, our work shows that the number needed to suspect is in the region of four to five for each one case of proven encephalitis. However, acyclovir is a relatively well-tolerated drug. The main risk is renal impairment, and that is why one should be monitoring the renal function of these patients, but certainly given in this acute phase as a drug of known efficacy before the diagnosis is confirmed is absolutely appropriate. Although HSV encephalitis is by far and away the most common viral encephalitis in the developed setting, varicella zoster, which also responds to acyclopia, is the next most common, but that still makes up somewhere in the region of 10 to 15% of encephalitis cases. So just because the patient's on acyclopia doesn't mean you can take your eye off the ball because there is a 80 to 90% chance that even if this is encephalitis, it is another form a different pathogen or an antibody-mediated process which would need managing appropriately. So start acyclovir early, but don't stop investigating fully. Excellent. Start acyclovir early, don't stop investigating, and probably at this point very reasonable to refer to a neurology team. Because as you've said, if we're only really covering for 10 to 15% of encephalitis, the other, if you know, we need to be investigating for the other 90%, and that probably needs more specialist input, would that be fair to say? Absolutely, and uh, even if you can't get a neurologist to see the patient directly, uh, at least uh, as a minimum, uh, receiving some advice from them would be appropriate. Um, I think we're also going to link to uh, an article which uh, was published recently which covers a, a lot of these topics and more. 
Uh, and I would also encourage medical students to look for the Association of British Neurologists UK guidance for encephalitis, for which uh, cover this in, in great detail. Fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Ben. I know you're very busy, and uh, that's been incredibly helpful with some amazing key points to take away. Um, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening. Look out for further episodes coming out in the near future. Thank you.